You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Geek Speak on KOSP is supported by Santa Cruz Electronics, offering extensive selection of computer and electronic parts as well as support services. Santa Cruz Electronics is open daily at 2808 SoCal Avenue and online at santacruzelectronics.com. It is Saturday, July 12th, 2008, 10.06 a.m. on the central coast of California. Today on Geek Speak, we cover the geek, Week in Geek News, and we have author Jay Lake on. Welcome to Geek Speak, bridging the gaps between geeks and the rest of humanity. I'm your host, Lyle Troxel. Please keep in mind the views expressed during Geek Speak are not necessarily those of KOSP. Today we are sp- speaking with author Jay Lake. He is um, best known, I think, in his novels at, for Mainspring and his sequel, Escapement. Both books, great. Um, well, we'll talk a lot more about them, but stay tuned with us. First, we're going to be doing the Geek News. Geek Speak is supported by Henry J. Ramirez, DDS in Santa Cruz, specializing in cosmetic and family dentistry, using digital technology for less radiation, and offering one appointment crowns and veneers. For appointments and more information, 423 2447. This is Geek Speak. My name is Lyle Troxel. In the air, I'm with me, our geeks. Sean Cleveland, Senior Technical Marketing Manager, NVIDIA. Morning, Sean. Good morning, Lyle. Miles Elam, Student, Programmer, and Political Junkie. Morning, Miles. Good morning. <laughs> Ryder Brooks, Support Engineer at Sun Microsystems. Hi, Hello. We also have um, uh, Rick Kleffel. He is a, a book reviewer, and uh, I guess you want to give yourself a little I'm interview? an NPR reporter on science fiction and uh, all sorts of uh, odd literary uh, niches. <laughs> and your blog? Trashotron.com slash agony, the agony column. And we also have author Jay Lake on. Hey, Jay. Hi, Lyle. We'll be discussing Jay Lake's books and his work in just a little bit, but first we're going to do some geek news, and I'd like to go ahead and start with Mr. Miles Elam. What's going on on the East Coast? On the East Coast, folks have, or during, or, let me start over again. (laughs) The Long Island Power Authority uh, is setting up the first commercial use of super high temperature superconductors. Now when I say high temperature superconductors, I don't mean room temperature or you know or water. Right. Yeah. I actually mean around seventy degrees Kelvin. So a power company is actually using superconductors to transport power? Yes. That's pretty cold. How are they keeping it cold? They're pumping liquid nitrogen down in the tube along with the with the cables. And that still makes sense financially? Yes, because they're able to use far fewer and far smaller lines than they used to. Wait, what, Lyle, uh, you said that's very cold. It's actually very hot. And they're using liquid nitrogen to cool it. Oh. <laughs> well, liquid nitrogen is very cold. I'm assuming they're keeping <laughs> it pretty... I mean, what's the temperature that they're aiming for? Uh, around 70, 73 Kelvin. Yeah. Wow. And is this because there's a long distance to travel? 
because there is a distance to travel because they have to worry about resistance issues. Uh-huh. But there's also the side effect that if there's a large-scale short circuit, a grid-level short circuit. Yeah, what uh, happens now? Uh, right now, they have to put in some heavy-duty electronics to try to figure out, okay, there's something in there. They have to worry about trips. You have to worry about actually causing damage to the equipment right. when something like that happens. And the line burning up, possibly. Exactly. And, and then these lines go back, take these, it back up again. And, and These existing lines are big. Exactly, yes. We're yeah. talking inches in diameter, right? Yes. Yeah, or actually, maybe a foot? Close to half, uh, half a foot. Okay. And there's a whole bunch diameter. of issues when you're dealing with large-distance travel. You've got to bump the voltage up quite a bit so that you can still transfer the amount of power. And so doing that, you're producing all these side effects of high voltage, which is easy to get through things. I mean, short circuit, electrocute people like birds and things. So it right. makes sense. And I'm assuming this is an underground passageway. Now, yes. How, how big is this about, new line? Well, they're talking about 138 kilovolts, uh, which would power about 300,000 homes. 300,000? Operating, operating at full capacity. Now, one of the side effects of this as superconductors, if you put the current at a higher uh, point than a certain threshold, superconductors stop being superconductors and start adding in resistance. Oh. So if they do get a short, if they do get a grid level short, if they do get too right. much power going through, then it's self-limiting. Oh, neat. Very cool. Is it so less you, lossy than traditional power transmission? On the contrary, it's a superconductor, which means that there effectively is no loss. Whereas traditional transmission is extremely lossy. Extremely yeah. lossy. That's why you actually have to have those half-foot diameter cables is you're trying to reduce those losses. Yeah, great, great story. Thank you very much. All right, there's been a lot of talk about the iPhone, and I'm not going to get into the whole... Let's not get into a lot of details about the service plans and all that stuff, but the new iPhone was released. What's the cool things about it, Ryder? Well, uh, the folks over at iFixit, which is a popular... Um, fix-it-yourself guide, replace parts. They went. They flew down to New Zealand and got one of the first ones. I'm sorry, no, is New Zealand or Australia? I forget. Way right, down they there. Sold it no, it was, it was uh, New Zealand, yeah, okay. and uh, basically took it apart right away, took pictures, and uh, one of the intriguing things about it is that you can now disassemble it with a screwdriver. There's wow. two screws on the bottom of it, and you can take it apart, uh, which you couldn't do it with the first-generation Is iPhone. the battery soldered in or not? The battery is not soldered in, oh, nice. so you still kind of have to take some stuff apart. You know, it's yeah. It's, what, what the iFixit people can do is kind of magical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've like got a full discovery. breakdown of it. It right. looks pretty simple. There's no, you know, weird shims, right, or right, it doesn't right. look like you're gonna snap your phone in half. No, no regluing. No regluing. Nice. Um, so the main thing is that you can more e- more effectively right. replace the battery right. uh, with what, a third what else? party. What else? Is one th- thing that I thought was intriguing was that the new battery, uh, it's, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but if you look at the catalog number online, it actually has a lower capacity battery than the original iPhone, which is kind of odd considering mm-hmm. that they were touting its new battery life. But you may be able to replace it with something that's got a higher capacity battery. Um, I, I had heard initial reviews that it's going to be worse on battery power because even the numbers they released looked poor if you're in a 3G area. Right, the 3G, and that's, this, that's the case Which for is all smartphones yeah, sure. that, that have 3G. Um, but uh, another big deal is that the, that the uh, glass LCD display that's on it is now two separate pieces, and you can actually disassemble the glass from the LCD, which with the first iPhone, uh, it was basically glued together, the two substrates. And so if you dropped your iPhone and cracked the glass, which is, seems to be one of the most common D- damaged things on an yep. iPhone if you drop it. Uh, it was very expensive to replace because you had to do the two parts and the, the glass and has sensors. integrated touch sensors and whatnot. Um, now it's basically six screws. You can replace them separately. 
Wow. So, yeah, so if you do a, scratch glass, you can put a new glass yeah, on. Yeah, and it'll make it more cost-effective to replace sure. either component if you have problems with it. Great. Um, and, you know, there's the, the obvious stuff. It has the, the, the GPS added in. It has um, basically the same screen. Um, it still has Bluetooth. Okay, so are you going to buy yeah. one? I'm not. Okay, let's no. move on. <laughs> Thank you, writer, for that. Um, Sean, let's talk a little bit about Tor, since Tor is the publisher of the our author's um, Yeah, books. I figured we'd take advantage of yeah. uh, Jay being here, because he probably knows all these people. So um, I was checking out J John Scalzi's um, yeah, his blog, which is probably one of the oldest blogs in the U.S., from what I understand. Um, and he was talking about how his first book, um, Old Man's War, was released as a free ebook by Tor in February. And Tor started this program as a weekly free ebook to kind of kick off their newsletter. They wanted to try and get people to to, right. to, to, to subscribe. They're also promoting their uh, new site launch at the end of this month. Yeah, I wanted to get into that okay. too. Um, so Joe, uh, John, excuse me, John Scalzi uh, said reluctantly, "Well, okay, you know, nobody really knew what was going to happen. Was it going to hurt and it was sales?" An older book, right? It was only book of yeah, so yeah. Sales had probably dropped a bit anyway. And and, and authors want to do this because they they have series. They have a um, you know maybe a two or three book series uh, you know, all tied together. Right. And if you had never read any of them, jumping into the third it's, book it's, is it's expensive. A good, it's a good way to uh, to get the first book to get you into it so that you go buy the new books. Right. Um, so he saw his. Um, um, the, the sales went up about 20%. After on, they released a free yeah, version? for the, the, the book sales. Wow. Um, it, of of Old Man's War went up after the ebook was released for free. Um, that, that's really interesting. And then he, the, with, they saw an increase of 30% on his second book. And that just that kind of stuff never happens. And um, this is mostly, mostly mid-list authors mm -hmm. who are seeing these kind of bumps. It's, it's the whole long tail. And I wonder if, that's gonna, if that kind of impact is going to stay as more and more companies do this. Like, if there's a plethora of free books out there, will you even see any change when one's well, released? It, it kind of gets back to this whole electronic book, you know. Some people are calling the electronic book is going to be the death of the printed book. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but if this is the case, the e-books are driving print book sales. Currently. It kind of tells me that people don't want to read electronic book, or they start it, they get interested, and they realize, you know, I'm not going to sit through a whole electronic book. I'm going to go buy the book. Jay, you're represented by Tor. Um, do you know more about this uh, story? Well, yeah. Uh, for Simon Owens covered it at Bloggasm. That's part of what yeah, he's called. Yeah, that's where I saw it. Yeah. And, uh, for example, Toby Buckell's book, Crystal Rain, the same thing happened. Uh, E-book came out. The print paperback had been print for the better part of a year. He saw about a 20% sales bump. And what I think that you're seeing here in part is they're picking authors that have a web presence, that have a technical following, mm -hmm. as opposed to authors that aren't prominent bloggers, aren't prominent in the tech world as right. well. Because Cory Doctorow has been doing ebooks for years, but he's Cory Doctorow. Where I think the stress is going to come is when you see that ebook rollout moving from people like John and Toby and Corey to people who don't really have an online presence mm -hmm. and don't really have an online following. Will that uptick matter to their audience? Because that's right. a different audience, quite frankly. Right. Mm -hmm. And well, nobody now, knows that answer. Yet. Also, the sales isn't the sales directly correlated, inversely correlated to how horrible it is to read a book on a digital interface at this point. Like if it was amazingly easy and fun to read a book, like it is. A paper version, um, would you see these uptakes in the paper version sales after the electronic version was released? I think it would. That would shift the model because I was absolutely right. Reading an ebook right now is not like reading a book, unless you're frankly like you guys here in this room, real geeks. Yeah. The whole experience of reading off a luminous surface, reading off a reflective surface, is completely different cognitively. Yeah. And well, kids, it's also how you can sit and how you can be. Like you know, I reading your books, I was sitting in chairs, I was laying down, I was at a park, and it was and so flexible. And if you'd left it on the bus, you wouldn't have been mad. <laughs> it's true. Well, I still would have been mad, but but Miles, you're you're kind of an electronic reader. You use your iPhone all the time you're reading stuff and well, what do you think? the iPhone's a little smaller form factor what right. I'm wondering about is as e-paper and, and 
things of its ilk, e-readers, uh, e get to a form factor closer to a book, both the form factor of your typical paperback mm. or to the format of your typical hardback. That, especially with the hardback, because that's going to be much the same feel of, of having there and probably a similar weight. Um, I do think that books are still going to be around, but at the same time, I think there is going to be that shift, much the same way that you had with CDs versus MP3s. Mm. Um, or vinyl would probably, probably mm -hmm. be a better example, vinyl versus MP3s. Yeah, but the experience of that is, as a listener, is pretty much the same. You're either listening through headphones or you're listening through speakers. A book is very different. You have a tactile experience. You've got a different kind of On the thing contrary, there are a lot of people that really love vinyl. That ha They say that part of the experience of listening uh, to music uh, 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 is uh. part of that vinyl. And that's, that's what that's I see as point. being that experience when you're reading a book is you have that nostalgia, you have that expectation. Breaking of what that a book cellophane, is like. pulling it out, looking at the pictures. But, but the, the vinyl heads are. A, oh, but it, well, it's not just the uh, nostalgia. I mean, it's a different physical experience. I mean, the sound of vinyl is very different from well, the sound uh, of a sure. CD. Yeah. It's the flaws. And, yeah, and I apologize for like saying the flaws. word nostalgia. I don't mean it as it's, it's antiquated. I mean it as it is something that we are used to. It's something if you aren't if you don't grow up with LPs, you don't have a longing for LPs. Jay, you had something. I was going to say that the, the the flaw in your analogy, I think, is that the vinyl heads are a very small fraction of the percentage of the listening audience. It's a very specific kind mm -hmm. of audiophilia to drive to vinyl, and the way you can measure that is by looking at the sales of turntables today. Right. The book heads are the vast majority of the reading audience, and probably will be until a generation of children have grown up where they had eBooks for their C spot. Now, speaking of that, what about No Child Left Behind? and their next generation device. Miles, you were talking about no, no, that. No, no, uh, oh, one LPC. laptop per child. One God. laptop per child. Oh, my gosh. God, what am I thinking? <laughs> Complete opposite. One laptop per child. The, the next, the next version of that... that, that um, is close to an e-book Notebook e is... is yeah. yeah. Now, now, what does that mean exactly? You, you were saying it's going to be more like a book. It's a clamshell so that instead of having keys, like a typical keyboard, it's going to have keys like an iPhone keyboard. In other words, it's a flat surface that it detects touches. And it's the size of a large paperback. Will it have haptic right. feedback? You would hope, but I don't think they've spec that yet. No. Yeah, but the idea is that if you're not using it for input, um, because most of the times what children are going to need is something to read. They're going to be reading information, not necessarily interacting with a keyboard or with a keyboard, with a computer is that you can open it up as a clamshell sideways, um, and it's just two pages of a book, right. the left and the right page. And, and can I say something about books speaking purely as an author? A book is just a delivery mechanism, yeah. right? It's a package. It's not the story. And we, we tend to conflate the two because that's been true for the last 500 years in our culture. Well, so, it's, it's pretty common for me to listen to books now. Yeah, audiobooks have... have uh, but on the other hand, look at, look at the numbers of audiobooks against the numbers. Of, audiobooks have never made the kind of impact that print books do. They've never supplanted right. print books. They've only supplanted print books in certain situations, like how people consume while they're driving their car. Right. Or can consume while they're multitasking. And frankly, yeah. not enough people are reading anyway. So if we come up with more ways okay, so for them to access books, I, I think it's great. It's interesting. You mentioned the reading, and Jay, you just mentioned the um, that there's only the bookheads are reading mostly. But yeah. actually, the amount of reading and writing um, in the digital age has increased dramatically compared to 60 years ago. Um, but it's just not stories. That's the, one of the things is it's the content that's being that's being changed. I mean, people are reading email all the time. People are conversing at a different level. And as Texting. writers, we're being Texting. driven. Do you remember, are you guys old enough to remember when Miami Vice was out and how much television changed after Miami Vice? Yeah. The, the Miami Vice look took yep. over on MTV, took yep. over on advertising. Yep. It took, the internet and the sort of instant stimulation and relatively high signal-to-noise ratio, the, the chunky meatiness of internet content, I think has affected what people want from books and stories and fiction. And writers who can keep up with that are able to succeed better than writers who want to write a sort of 50s-style literary pacing, for example. Right. 
And right now we've been concentrating on what happens if you take a book to electronic form, but it's as making this comparison as though they're one-to-one. Now imagine, for example, that you have a book or a textbook. Uh, textbooks is what really coming to mind for me, where instead of saying, here's your citation for something else, you click on it and it takes you to the citation. Yeah, of course. Um, things that are not possible with a book. Let's keep so, in mind, though, that Miles reads computer textbooks <laughs> for leisure. That's what he has in the bathtub? Yeah. <laughs> like, like well, thick programming manuals. I don't think I would want to have an electronic book in the bathtub. That would probably be a... <laughs> Hard to, I have a camera that goes underwater. Why not an e-book? <laughs> well, true enough. True enough. All right. Let's do a couple more news stories, I think. Wait, um, you know what? I wanted to say yep. one last thing. Tor Books, um, if you go to Tor.com, you can still sign up for these free weekly ebooks. Uh, they're going to end soon because they're going to launch this super site, which I want to maybe ask Jay about in a moment. Yeah. But right before they do that, um, they're actually going to release all the ebooks, everything they've released up till now. They're going to make available for a short period of time. So you might want to get on that mailing list if you want some free sci fi ebooks. Definitely check it out. Now, what's this new super site they're launching? And understand, I don't speak for Tor. I'm a Tor author, but I'm not yeah, representing sure. them here. But you can imagine us authors have been gossiping about this for at least a year. And it's been a subject of intense interest to us. Uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's uh, one of the senior editors at Tor and a really great guy, uh, also one of the guys behind Making Light, if you're familiar with that blog, okay. uh, was explaining to me last year that what they're trying to do with Tor.com is provide a true central site for the SF world. Sci-fi.com should have been that, but it never really gelled that way, yeah. and the Sci-Fi mm-hmm. channel kind of went a different way. We don't have a boing boing or a slash dot the way that the tech community does yep. in science fiction. There isn't a unified platform. And he made a point to me that I thought was interesting. It never occurred to me. They will routinely risk $100,000 on a book that they have no idea if it will prosper. Because you never know in publishing. Right. If you did, publishers would be billionaires. Right. And so why not take one book's worth of budget and put it into web development? Because in the web world, a six-figure development budget is pretty solid, especially mm-hmm. if you're not doing e-commerce and that level of dynamism. Right. Now, obviously, in the long run, they want to use that to drive sales, to do to possibly do one-to-one okay, sales. Okay, but are they, they going to cover stuff other than their books? Well, and that's I think that's the Because that's the winning decision right and there. Right? I don't know the answer to that, but I know they're taking a really progressive view of this. You Good. know, this, this is in the metal world, metal music. Um, there is a site called Blabbermouth that is actually hosted by Roadrunner Records, but that's where everybody goes to learn about, they do re- reviews of other, from other, um, you know, uh, uh, manufacturers releases out there, um, studios, and and nobody seems to care. It's it's just everyone has globbed onto this as the new site yeah. for and, metal. And I will and say And it'd be interesting if Tor could do this. The people with their behind site. this, Tor has got some very smart people there. They they understand that. How they're going to solve it, I can't tell you because I'm not inside yeah. that envelope. But I don't believe for a minute they're not going to find a way to address right. what the other publishers are doing. If they can get real credible news people, like third party that are not tied to Tor, and uh, it, you know you can, it's very obvious that they're not backing Tor. They could work. Yeah, yeah. I hope it does. Okay, friends, friend of the show, Jesse Wilkins. He's been on the show before. He's a consultant guy in the Central Coast, California. So you're looking for a geek at the home. Um, he's been on Geek Speaking. Do search for him, Jesse Wilkins. He'd come to your place. Anyway, uh, last week he sent out a note to people because he's had a lot of complaints about uh, network dropping uh, with Microsoft users. And what happened was Microsoft released a patch on Tuesday, July 8th, that caused the problem. If you have Zone Alarm um, firewall installed, the Microsoft patch then killed your connection and so you had to go through the settings and fix it and it's pretty detailed and such but I'll just say that if you're getting network problems after Microsoft patch and you have zone alarm maybe disabled zone alarm would do it but if not definitely take a look at this post uh, before you update update uh, Microsoft Windows it's up on our forums you can find it from today's show which is uh, what's today's mm-hmm. date guys July 12th, 12th. 12th. All right. and, and zone alarm has happened. issued a patch for that too. oh they have yeah. good I was wondering what happened with that. I was playing around with networking uh, at my girlfriend's office, 
and was having all sorts of problems trying to get out again and had to turn off zone alarm. I'm wondering that's if that what happened. it was. Yeah, that patch. I also noticed 75% of the computers at this table are Macintoshes. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and Sean's just too cheap to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is too. Oh, yours is too? Okay, I'm a Mac guy. I, I'm a hardware guy, so I like hey, the beauty of PCs. I, I mean, here's my cred. I had a 128K Mac running System 1.1 once upon a time, back when that was the hot nizzle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, uh, let's go ahead and start going into discussion with you, Jay. Jay Lake, um, the Wikipedia entry talks about you as a science, science fiction and fantasy writer. 2003 won the Writers of the Future contest. In 2004 won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in Science Fiction. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and currently works as a geek, a uh, product manager for a voice uh, services company and phone services company. When appearing at conventions, and right now in this interview, he wears Hawaiian shirts. There you go. So there's the entry for Jay. Jay, welcome very much. Thank you very Thank much you. for being here. Appreciate Thank you. And I, I tried to dress appropriately for radio today. <laughs> well, and luckily, I've got a face for radio, so we're set. Um, your two books, Mindspring uh, Mind and Escapement. Mindspring, on my vacation two weeks ago, uh, Rick gave it to me right before I left, mm -hmm. was able to read it. Fantastic world. I want you to describe a bit about what this world looks like. Well... The basic idea here is that the, the uh, Renaissance Enlightenment concept of God the Watchmaker is true. Now understand, in real life I'm a raving secularist, but I thought the idea was so intensely interesting that I envisioned a clockwork universe. It's about a light year wide from side to side, the entire universe, which that is an information in the book. I'm telling oh, you that interesting. now. The stars are literally, literally lamps hung in the sky. And the orbits of the planets around the sun are brass tracks. Uh, you know, the Earth's, the Earth's orbit is a brass track 93 million miles in diameter. Now, stop and imagine the thermodynamics of that for a minute, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, this is not science fiction. <laughs> right, 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 right. But it makes for really lovely fantasy because everybody loves clockwork. I, there's, we have a fascination. Since I wasn't even aware how much until I started reading this book how much I really did clockwork. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, people stop and look at grandfather clocks. We, we, one of the most interesting devices from the ancient world is the Antikythera mechanism, which is a very complex piece of clockwork from class, classical, classical Greece that was pulled up off the sea bottom. So here you have the Earth with a 100-mile-high wall around the equator in order to accommodate the gear that has to mesh with the ring gear that is its orbit. And so it clatters around the sun on this set of gears. And the, what's, the Earth is a literal young Earth creation. It's 6,000 years old. But because I'm me, it has Australopithecines and Neanderthals running around in it. <laughs> and the world is roughly 1900. Um, Victoria lived a little bit longer in this world than in real life. And the Victorian Empire and the Chinese Imperial China are in a Cold War, much analogous to the 1950s in our world. And England owns... England still England. the yes, power. Yeah. England, yes, England owns Eastern North America, and Western North America is never referenced in the book. But England basically owns everything east of the Louisiana Purchase, and uh, and this is 1900. Yes, so it's definitely an alternate universe kind of uh, fiction. Yes, and uh, we interviewed another author a little while ago who also had alternate reality kind of stuff. And the thing I find wonderful about that is that it's a kind of a historic novel as well in that, in that you start thinking about these places and these, mm -hmm. these times. Of course, it's so fantasy that I wouldn't want to you know, take a test on history after, the, after reading this, but it's very interesting to have that context. And you do it at every level. So there's a lot of Christianity in the book, mm -hmm. and yet the Christianity is modified to mm -hmm. fit that. I love the prayer you have. Um, do, do you know the prayer by heart? Do you want to? Uh, no, I, we'd have to look it up, but there's, okay. a, there's a version of the Lord's Prayer in there. That's would a you, would bit you mind? Different. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I was raised in part by my evangelical uh, minister grandfather. So <laughs> the original prayer, I know this one I have to read. Our Father, who art in heaven, craftsman be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy plan be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day our errors as we forgive those who err against us. Lead us not into imperfection and deliver us from chaos. 
for thine is the power and the precision forever and ever. Amen. It has a wonderful effect on, on you know, our, our experiencing a Christian world in that it rings so true and close, and yet it brings that fantasy element. I really like that attribute. Well, and think about a world where all you have to do to understand that creation, the creation story is true, is look at the sky. There are no atheists. There are only dissenters. And in our, in our everyday world, for, for people of faith, I have many friends who are people of faith, the, the, the challenge of faith is that you believe God is present despite a lack of external evidence. You make, that's the term leap of faith. Is a, is a, it's not literal, you're not jumping off a building, but you're doing the mental equivalent of jumping off a building if you choose to adopt a position of faith. This is a world where the leap, it's, skepticism is the leap that you have to step away from the evidence, the in-your-face evidence of creation. And so to me, I was turning like, a, like turning a sock inside out. I was taking the dynamic of our culture and the religion in our world and turning it inside out and seeing what it did to people. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about like creating the characters for this world because you create these really interesting characters and some of them are, are people like we might know in this world, but as you say, you turn them inside out and... and how do you go about let designing me, the characters? Let me ask you to do that in just a minute, because we do have to take a quick break. Sorry. Um, Geek Speak on KOSP is supported by Dr. Don Motika, announcing OptimageHealth.com in Santa Cruz, a functional medical medicine practice and consultation service combining an array of modalities to achieve and maintain wellness. Appoint, appointments available at OptimageHealth.com. Stay with KOSP for Castle Cottage this morning at 11 a.m. on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Today on Geek Speak, we have a very full house of geeks, and we are going to be taking your calls with questions and comments about the novels that we're talking about and, and Jay Lake's um, work. The phone numbers are 476-2800, toll-free at 1-800-655-5877. Of course, you can go to geekspeak.org and participate in our forums or ask us email questions there. Broadcasting HD Radio on 88.9 FM, this is Central Coast Public Radio, KOSP Santa Cruz, KBDH San Ardo, or on the web at kosp.org. I'm Lyle Troxell. I'm joined with Sean Cleveland, writer Brooks, author Jay Lake, interviewer and reader extraordinaire Rick Kleffel, and geek Miles Elam. And we're taking your calls with questions and comments about science fiction and clockwork and uh, the wonderful ideas that Jay brings up in his novels. The phone numbers, again, to ask us questions, 476-2800. Again, that's 476-2800, and that's in the 831 area code. If you're not there and here, the phone number is 1-800-655-5877. Again, that's 1-800-655-5877. Geek Speak on KOSP is supported by Business with Pleasure, a full-service business center in Scotts Valley, offering computer rentals, printing, design, shipping, delivered office supplies, notary public, and more. Information is online at businesswithpleasure.com. Rick, will you summarize your question for Jay? <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Jay, could you tell us about developing characters for this world? Because there, some of the characters are just like people in this world, and some of them are very different. Well, and that's one of the advantages of using a variant on a uh, history to, to position your characters. You can draw from real life. So the protagonist of Mainspring is a clockmaker's apprentice. He's a 15-year-old boy, and he's a fairly normal person. He's kind of a projection of myself. And as Elizabeth Baer says, what you do with characters is you put them in a tree and throw rocks at them and see what they do. So there he is. He's in a tree, and I'm throwing rocks at him. But the people he meets along the way of his journey in the first book are people who in many ways are absolutely shaped by the world they live in. Um, so the, the, the airshipman, uh, Threadgill Angus Al-Wazir, who is one of the protagonists of the second book, is a guy that could only exist in that world. He couldn't exist in our world because he's, he's uh, half Arab, half Scots, uh, crewman on, an, on a Victorian airship. Now, you may or may not know this, but the Victorian Empire didn't actually have airships in real life. <laughs> and I don't, think they had, I don't think they had a lot of Arab crewmen on their ships either. So he's a guy that's absolutely a creature of his time and place. 
You go to the second book, uh, Escapement. I have a metal man in Escapement that uh, somebody recently compared to the Tin Man of Oz, which frankly never occurred to me while I was writing it. He's, po- he's powered by literally a seal of Solomon. And if you're familiar with biblical magic and Old Testament uh, traditions, Solomon's seal was itself a-, a source of great magic. He's got a seal of Solomon inside of him. He's a creature of the wall. He's a creature of the biblical traditions of this world. He can only come out of this world. And you put him against people who feel like they've walked out of real life. And that's where you get a lot of the interesting tension in the fiction. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Now, I want to bring up a, a term that comes immediately to mind, steampunk. The steampunk is, is, has taken a life outside of literature. And, and there's a huge fashion movement. There are a lot of makers who are making models and clothing to do with steampunk. Yet it really started with literature. At Maker's Fair, that is very much a steampunk uh, you know, gathering. I, it's so much so now. It is just crazy this last year. Um, they would go nuts over your book. And I've been interacting with that community somewhat. Evelyn Kreitzer back in New England does a lot of steampunk fashion work. She's been in the New York Times of that. Yeah. Um, I've run into, not personally, but on the internet, run into Jake Von Slatt, who is, is a, a big, basically a maker in the steampunk world. And those people, that supports something, I think, that in literary terms, steampunk isn't a movement, it's an aesthetic. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about steampunk when I wrote this book, as strange as that sound, given yeah. that it's often on the top of people's lists when they talk about steampunk novels. Yeah. I was thinking about clockwork because of the time and place I use and the fact that I personally think steam technology is cool. I put a lot of that in there, but I wasn't, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't subscribing to a steampunk manifesto. Yeah. And, I, and the high tech in, in, in mainspring, at least, um, the engines of the highest tech ship is not steam, yeah. which is interesting. That's you, right. you don't follow, most steampunk novels have a, a, a style and you don't follow that style. You just have a bunch of steampunk elements that work right. in your universe in the book, which and I, is really interesting. I have written actual steampunk. I have a novella called The Baby Killers, which is coming out from PS Publishing in 2010, which is basically high camp steampunk. Now, by 2010, steampunk may be over. I'll look like an idiot. Or <laughs> it may be going strong and I'll look like a real genius. It's a know. good story. won't matter. That's well, true. Huh? I happen to like it. <laughs> um, we have a call from Pacific Grove. Diane, welcome to Geek Speak. Hi. Hi. Um, I, don't, I don't have any comments about the book. That's okay. I mean, about the book you're talking about now, but I do have a comment about the e-book. And uh, at, I've been I've been using computers for the 128K, since the 128K Mac. Um, and so I, it's not like I'm not familiar with, you know, technology and stuff, but I think the e-books are absolutely stupid. Um, what I do is I do, a, I um, multitask. A lot. I garden. I knit. I clean my house, etc. And I listen to audiobooks. I have an audiobook library that's probably as big as my book library. And if I can't find something on audiobooks, I mean, the first, I'm an NPR person, and mm-hmm. as soon as I hear hear a hear a review of a book, I go immediate, immediately to Audible.com. And I listen to probably three-quarters or more of my books on audio, you know, MP3. And that is an electronic uh, book, right? Well, it's not an electronic book like you guys are talking about. You guys are talking about looking at books online or on one of these contraptions. And I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Why not just read a book if you're going to do that? Um, Okay, well... the The only thing I can think of that would you know, reason to get an electronic version of a book would be so you could do something else like I do. I sit and knit and I listen to stories or I garden and I listen to stories and mm-hmm. I whatever. Um, and I think that one of the reasons audiobooks are not 
more, uh, you know, people don't buy them more is because people don't know about them. Yeah. Um, um, I tell my knitting friends, you know, gee, you should do this. And they always say, oh, I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't even know that was available. It's true. It's not really well known. Well, thank you very much, uh, Diane, for the call. Thank you. You know, I want to... I want to comment on audiobooks. Yeah, go ahead. Because I have a, a an Audible subscription, and uh, and you know it's it's interesting um, that the books aren't like they used to be. It's not just somebody reading them. These are actors, very talented people who are actually getting into the characters and changing their voices and styles, and uh, it's very much like a you know a drama. Yeah. It's like watching TV but with the TV off. Well, it's, it's like old time radio. Old radio. Yeah, yeah it, and and I'm really impressed with the quality. And I listen to uh, the. If you can, you can listen to little snippets of all the books they've had. And I checked out Mainspring. Yeah, they've got a great production of Mainspring. And they do, yeah. I was really you didn't impressed. read it. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, I, at one point we were discussing that, but I realized how much studio time I'd have to put in. And Oh, it's immense. You could be amazed what I could write in that amount of studio time. Right. <laughs> Keep writing. We'll and I'm a writer. You know? I'm not yeah. voice talent. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the thing with, with Audibles is that... Uh, you got to really watch out for abridged novels, you know. To me, oh, that's yeah. like the, that's the bastardization of, yep. of novels. It's the killer. <laughs> Readers Digest condensed yeah. books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so get unabridged, guys, if you're yeah. if you're going to do a, a book on tape. Yeah, and if you haven't tried it, it's it's worth it. It's worth a try, that's for sure. And, and their uh, software's great. I uh, chose to have it downloaded on my iPod, and yeah. it's just a little piece of software that takes care of everything. The download, it automatically loads it. I was I was impressed with it so yeah. much so that I decided to just let it go for a while and. And try it out. There's a there's a few podcasts I listen to that actually get under it bit by Audible, and therefore they give codes to give you a free a free novel basically. And uh, the one I'll recommend is Grammar Girl. So if you go to grammargirl.com, I think um, you can find her on Geekspeak website as well. She has a code that gives you a free book if you want to try out Audio Audible for the first time. I think it's Grammar Girl after Audible.com, but check her site first. In any case, let's go on to talking about your books. Rick, do you have another question? Do we have some email questions from people? No, we don't have no? any email okay, questions. But one thing I wanted to ask Jay about is Zeppelins and dirigibles. You have you have an abiding interest in these. Where did it come from? When did it start? And will it ever end? Oh, come on, Rick. Who doesn't love a Zeppelin? <laughs> <laughs> and yet, and one thing that Rick's referring to is that I co-edited with David Moles a book called All-Star Zeppelin Adventure Stories several years ago. Oh. Which was nothing but stories about Zeppelins, dirigibles, and in one case, a barrage balloon, <laughs> but uh, lighter than air vehicles. Who put that out? Uh, Wheatland Press. Okay. And it's still around. You can find it on Amazon. You can order it direct from Wheatland. It's probably not in bookstores anymore. It's been too long. It yeah. has some really, really nice work in it, and uh, including a, a story called Voice of the Hurricane, which is by a guy I have never heard of before or since. But when I pulled out of the slush pile, I kind of went berserk. Uh, wow. It's an amazing. It's basically Moby Dick in Kansas with Evelyn's. Um and if, if that doesn't get you to want to read it, you're just dead to me. <laughs> Zeppelin, I mean, you, you know, there is a fascination with Zeppelins in the culture. One of the earliest UFO scares was the airship scare of 1896. And at the time, even Zeppelins, lighter, Zeppelin per se, lighter than airships were barely a technology then. But people knew what they were. Hot air balloons have been around since the 18th century, the Montgolfier brothers. People knew what LTA was. They didn't use the term. But I think that Zeppelins and airships in general, the originals were one of the first incarnations of air travel that looked substantial to people. Early airplanes look like kites because yeah. that's what they were. Right. Early airships are impressive. Well, your airships on the front of your covers are amazing. Oh, They're I got, just incredible. I won the cover lottery, dudes. I mean, that is a touch-me cover if I've ever seen one. I, I could tell you, no one ever buys a book they didn't pick up first. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a cover that says, pick me up and look at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
The, you know, the, you know, to describe these Zeppelins, just to be clear, because it's the era that it's set in, the ships look like, you know, galleys, old classic 1900 galleys, yeah. and they're suspended with these giant gas uh, bags yeah. and wings. and it's They don't look like a, anything like any real Zeppelin that ever existed right. in our world. Yeah. They're, they're very much a fantasy kind of Zeppelin. These look like ships of the line from, you know, Napoleonic naval warfare. That is but, exactly correct. But with, a, <laughs> but with a really large, um, you know... Uh, the, you're not even using hot air in these balloons. You're using hydrogen. Yeah. So, so they're very, very dangerous. <laughs> and, and, and this comes through in the story, just how yes. dangerous these things are. So Hy there are hydrogen issues in the book, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and this is 1900, and these people are pulling hydrogen. Well, out. helium was a lot harder to get than hydrogen in 1900. I mean, we understood electrolysis uh, in 1900. Yeah. Electrolysis? That's not the right word. It's a, we yeah. every time, I don't mean hair removal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we understood splitting water into oxygen and hydrogen in 1900. I mean, once you had electricity, you had that. Yeah. So making hydrogen isn't hard. Right. You can't make helium. You have to get it out of the ground in Amarillo, Yeah. pretty much. That's where it comes from. And it's running out, by the way. You know, we're yes. running out of helium. Yeah. The earth is getting heavier every day. <laughs> well, it made me think, too, uh, <laughs> the enormous influence one disaster can have on a culture. The Hindenburg pretty much brought an end to this kind of... And you know why the Hindenburg burned? It wasn't because hydrogen. Because it was doped in rocket fuel. It was fuel. doped in rocket fuel. They painted <laughs> it with skin. hydrazine yeah. for the love of Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that, there was a good reason for that because it, it uh, made it so that it was a smooth surface so that it didn't have pores so that the hydrogen didn't leak out. But... It was also rocket fuel. <laughs> Somebody had not done a material safety data sheet on that thing. <laughs> yeah, and additionally, it's not just the, the only example of that kind of catastrophe. The uh, the reactors, um, blow, nuclear reactors blowing up, caused us to stop doing nuclear energy, which is the same type of thing. One disaster or multiple disasters in this case causes us to be completely. Three fearful. Mile Island released less radiation than any coal fire plant does in a year. Yep. Yeah, everybody looks. <laughs> and at that Chernobyl as a was disaster. made like no nuclear power station at all right. ever in the West. And they so. operated it like they wanted it to blow up. They operated it like <laughs> Russians. <laughs> so what what about the other I mean you, you talk in this in this world that you have, you've got China and um, Britain and they are mm -hmm. the, the power. What about the other European countries? Are they're just consumed and you did you change and modify the time based off of this giant change to the planet? Well, there are references to history in the book that the Romans existed, for example. Yeah. Um, and so for no particularly good reason that I can justify other than I wanted to do it, I presume that the course of Western history was roughly similar until the age of exploration. And because you don't have access to the southern hemisphere by water, the uh, Portuguese and Dutch and Spanish ascendancies were much more difficult to manage. And so what you wind up with is some analog of the Napoleonic Wars, which I haven't written about, but it's implied by the structure of the story, right. which is overwhelmingly won by Britain. There are references in the second book to Sweden being independent and uh, Eastern Europe uh, not necessarily being under direct British control. But France and, and Peninsular Europe is absolutely part of England. Uh, and and kind of what you're talking about is you can't you can't go you can't um, travel the same ways. You, uh, Portugal does not get Brazil right because right. they can't, you can't get find to Brazil. It. And so there's all these power structures that are different. And England happens to win to get yeah. to the, con the this continent. Now and, and and if you think about it as and I write alternate history as well. If you think about it as actual alternate history, that makes no sense whatsoever. If you have a world that starts out like that, you're going to a completely different development pattern. Right, of course. Uh, and so the, you mentioned earlier that having the historical references gives readers a place to kind of anchor them in the yeah. story without yeah. having to learn everything from scratch. But I'm cheating outrageously when I do it. It is absolutely not. I mean, if I wanted to write a true alternate history with that physical starting point, I could. But it would be very, very different. Right. Uh, this was really for the fun of it. And yeah, they're okay. supposed to be fun books. They're not. There's serious philosophy in the books, but you'll never notice it unless you're looking for it. Well, t talking yeah. about serious philosophy, let's bring up spirituality for a little bit. Because there, sure. there's a very core in the first book, 
in the second book, there's spirituality that runs a strong core through yeah. it. I mean, it is a mission from God to some respect. Um, so literally, yeah, literally. <laughs> um, I, I find myself uh, debating that the whole time, whether yeah. it's still, you know, because I grew up in a world that doesn't have the ring, um, yeah. I don't have that kind of massive proof. But the characters still struggle with whether God is, and it really comes down to God exists. Everybody kind of takes that. You're insane if it doesn't because you see it. Yeah. But there's the discussion of whether God plays a role in the universe or just started it. Well, and there are two key things here. One, if you think about this universe for very long, you realize that it probably has to be completely deterministic. And if it's a completely deterministic universe, then free will is illusory. Yet the characters are possessed of volition. They're just like you and me, more mm -hmm. or less, if you and mm -hmm. me lived in a world of Zeppelins and 100-mile-high walls, right? So clearly free will is in play, but the people who are actually thinking very carefully about it realize there's a really fundamental paradox that they don't know the answer to. Why do they have free will in a deterministic universe? The other problem with this universe, and again, this is that turning the sock... Oh, excuse me. Well, Go let, ahead. Let's stop on that for a second. Why do you yeah. think that this universe implies so much more determinism? I mean, we have a world that's pretty ordinary. I mean, your ideas came from mm -hmm. the time period when we thought of the world as the universe as a mm -hmm. very clockwork piece. So why is it so different in this world? Well, because when we thought of that, even the people who thought at the time were thinking metaphorically. They didn't mm -hmm. literally believe that the universe is clockwork. It was a way to talk about the universe. So even, you know, you, if you go back to the notions of the celestial spheres, that was a more literal visualization of people who have had bad instruments. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to the clockwork universe model, we have decent instrumentation. We know what the moons of Jupiter look like. We have some notion what the stars are. And we mm -hmm. see error in it. Yes. We see error in Mars and go, oh, what is going on? And yeah. know that there's more complexity than just a simple clock but, mechanism. But, but they're using clockwork as a metaphor in that period because they haven't arrived at an understanding of laws of gravitation. A lot of what we knew about physics in the 19th and 20th centuries right. weren't available to people in the 18th century. And clockwork, was, with all its revolutions and its orbits, was a useful metaphor of the time. The difference here is that it's literal. And, of course, clockwork, by definition, is deterministic. It, it's just like code. It only does what you tell it to do. I mean, clockwork isn't like code. It is code. It's just code instantiated in brass rather than bits and bytes. Well, but the people bleed. I mean, it's not, not everybody's a brass man. So do you, do you perceive, I mean, do, do you picture that world as everything is tiny, tiny gears? If you remember in the second part of Mainspring, when the navigator... I didn't want to ruin it for anybody, when, when but... The, yeah. well, I'm going I'm to spoil her just a tiny bit. Okay, okay. There's a scene when the navigator dies, yeah. and he falls off that pillar, and he coughs up a mouthful of springs. Yeah. And it's unclear in the text, from the point of view of the reader, whether that is because the character, the, the protagonist has been having mystical visions at that point. He's seeing kind of everything as, as clockwork, mm -hmm. or whether that's literally true in, a, in an empirical sense. And you keep that, you keep that, that throughout the novel yes. as a question for the reader. And what I was thinking when I wrote it, and bear in mind, I'm only the writer. I don't know what the book means to you. I only know what it means to me. Mm -hmm. I, I firmly believe as a writer that the story belongs to the reader. Thinking as a writer, what I was thinking of was essentially uh, quantum indeterminacy, right? It is both things at the same time. Mm -hmm. It is in both oh, states nice. at the same time, and it's the observer and the act of observation that collapses the waveform. Now, not, not to add any more spoilers, but there is more of that kind of element of, in, of uh, quantum potential there and, and change yeah. that can occur. Yeah, but. And of course, quantum uh, combining quantum mechanics and clockwork is just kind of a sick thing to do. Yeah, I'm trying <laughs> to get my head around this right now. Well, this is why I'm a science fiction writer, because if I was an engineer, I'd be a disaster. <laughs> nice. um, anyway, the second thing I was going to come to is, again, talking about the literality of God and spirituality. This is a literal God who, if you read the books carefully, is absent. When, yeah. when Gabriel shows up at the beginning of the first book, it eventually, at least to me, should be apparent, I mean, my intention in the writing, that Gabriel's kind of, kind of, uh, kind of uh, running his operation on his own. Yeah, right? he's kind of been tasked to do something. He does yeah. it every and, two thousand years. He kind of participates. And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, you you have you have again. This is to contrast with the everyday world of of, of persons of faith, where God is present 
in the world, even though the proof isn't there. I ever, well, the proof is there, but God has meanwhile gone off and done something else. Yeah. We're talking with Jay Lake. He mm-hmm. is kind of known for Clockwork Universe. He's got a great book called Mainspring, which helps to envision this wonderful world of a clockwork planet, meaning that there is a gear ring around the equator, a 150-mile-high gear ring mm-hmm. of stone with magical creatures on it, and a world that's very much like the 1900s of our um, era. And the second book, Escapement, um, takes another journey through that world with three protagonists. Um, I want to talk about all the all of this, and at the same time, I don't want to ruin it for everybody. So, Rick, you have a much more experience interviewing and not ruining, so go for it. <laughs> well, I want to take this in a slightly different direction because one of the things I like about Jay's writing is he is really hard to pin down, and he's written a wide variety of fiction. That's true. And, and I wouldn't would hesitate even to call Jay a science fiction writer. I'd, I'd say he's a, a a writer who uses elements of the fantastic. Uh, liberally, but not exclusively. And I wanted to ask Jay about just the variety of stuff he edits. And one of the places you can see this variety reflected is in the aptly named Polyphony series that he co-edits with uh, Deborah Lane, is it? Yeah, Deborah Lane, Wheatland Press in yes. uh, Whistleville, Oregon. Yeah, in fact, uh, on as of Polyphony 6 was my last volume of Polyphony. Um, she's doing that with Forrest Aguirre now. But we did the first six volumes together between 2002 and 2007. What is it? Uh, it's a slipstream anthology series. And slipstream is one of those words that means what you want it to mean, but a, a very loose definition would be speculative fiction with a very strong literary flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, that I could probably get ten writers in the room and get ten different opinions about that. And do you ask for the stories, or do you just find stories and, and then say? No, we solicit did? them. We put out a call for reading. We say, um, you know, please send us your stories. We'd get anywhere from four to six hundred stories per volume that we would then select down to something between eighteen and twenty-four to actually make it into the final book. Do you, is this only published works, or do you taking fresh anybody? Oh, it's fresh anybody. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we we had a, a strong desire to have at a minimum at least one brand new writer in every volume, just nice. sort of for the sake of supporting the field. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, science fiction is a small field, and there's a very, very strong sense of wanting to bring people forward. Um, we, we, you know, if you wanted to be really mercenary about it, you could say we're helping out our own competition, but it's not a, it's not a zero-sum game, right. and we need new voices all the time. Well, and you enjoy, you enjoy reading new work? Yes, very You're much so. Reader. I read most years, I actually read more unpublished work than published work, <clears throat> okay. because I read novels for blurb, I read arcs, I read manuscripts, I do editing projects, and by the end of the year, I may well have read twice as many unpublished stories and novels as published. What percentage is interesting to you? I mean, do you see a lot of bad stuff? The real secret of slush piles, and you'll hear people talk about, you know, oh, it came from the slush pile. <laughs> the real secret of slush piles is mediocrity, not badness. Uh-huh. There's lots and lots of stuff that's okay, almost good enough, nearly made it. Yeah. I mean, I've written plenty of that. I have. I certainly have more stories that didn't sell than did. Um, so, and what do those require? An editor? Well, mostly they require being sent back and you buy another story. <laughs> really? <laughs> you, you know, you, you, unless you're editing for development, which I don't think anybody really does anymore, you're looking for the story that will really break out. It has something really distinctive in its voice, in its vision, right. uh, in, in its composition. And, and I personally am a voicey writer. I mean, if you, if you read very much of my work, what you see is that there's a very strong voice. There are writers who have very transparent voice. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, to name one, David Weber. It's, it's, there's a different virtue to that writing, yeah. and, and different people want different things. But I think voice is the one thing you cannot teach somebody. It has to come out of them. You can teach someone craft. You can see, teach someone technique. They have to find their own voice. And one of the things I'm looking for when I'm editing short fiction is someone with a distinctive voice that will add something to my reading experience. And when I am an editor and you buy that book with my name on the cover, like All-Stars Evelyn Adventure Stories, it'll add to your reading experience. Right. That's interesting because uh, Pixar, uh, 
an off and a fresh air with Terry Gross. She interviewed Pixar, and uh, they, they they do the same thing with the hiring. They don't hire people who know anything about computers. That's not a, even a requirement. They look for people who have these innate skills to actually yes. bring a story to the screen, drawing all of those things that you know you kind of need to, to to tell a story, mm. and all that other stuff is craft. It, it can be taught. You guess exactly. You can teach craft. Rick, in there. Sure. Jay, uh, I, I wanted to talk to you. Let, tell us a little bit about, you have a couple of other series out there. There's uh, the Flowers series. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that because that's a really interesting and very different take on fantasy that reminds me a lot. Uh, I just saw Hellboy 2 last night and I was thinking about Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, how was it? it it's wonderful. Okay, good. If good. you like the first one, it's, yeah. it's kind of like that through the Pan's Labyrinth filter. Okay. And you're, <laughs> you're, you're, <laughs> Uh, Flower series has some of those kind of elements of just a lot of different fantastic things rolled in. Could you talk about that as a fantasy? And the book is Trial of Flowers from Nightshade Press, uh, excuse me, Nightshade Books, and its sequel, Madness of Flowers, will be out at the end of this year. And it is urban fantasy in the old sense of the term, not meaning not you know vampires and werewolves in Los Angeles, but city fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and comparable books would be Perdita Street Station or Cities of City of Saints and Madman okay. or The Etch City. And I was using the idea of the dead empire. So it's a city sort of like Rome after the Roman Empire, except it's sort of literally alone in the world at that point. And the people that live there are very grotesque in the classical sense of the term. It's not that they're physically ugly, although some of them are. It's that they have lives that are very challenging and strange. And so a significant portion of the city's population are boxed dwarves, children who are literally raised in boxes so their bodies will not grow, which binds them to the city and their work. That, by the way, was an actual practice in Renaissance Italy uh, that was used to how they created court dwarves for a period of time. And these people uh, have are basically bound to the city by blood and pain, and they are the accountants and administrators and civil servants of the city. Um, their the the vision behind Trial of Flowers, I think, was just wanting to explore what it really meant to be in the darkest part of a city. And so it's a very dark, strange book. I mean, I would give Mainspring to a high school student or junior high school student. I probably wouldn't give Trial of Flowers to anybody I wanted to talk to me later. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> too, too disturbing. Yeah, it's, let's put it this way. The nickname for that book in some circles is the Dwarf Sex Book. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> but it's one of my favorite things I've ever written. It's, 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 it, you know, talk about voice and style. It's an absolute outbreak of, of, of voicey style. And, and the other thing I have to bring in is I think where a lot of – you can find a lot of your ideas kind of floating around in a different form is the Fortean List. Tell us a little bit about Charles Fort and the Fortean List. Ah, Charles Hoy Fort, the man who basically invented the modern idea of the paranormal as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. the first guy who actually kept the X-Files. Yeah. He talked – he called it damned data. It's what we would call X-Files today, mm-hmm. which is the idea of things uh. which are anomalous and are not explained by prevailing theories but nonetheless exist. And really classic examples of this are things like finding toads inside of stones or the fact that in coal mines, they often bring up artifacts from coal seams. And this is real. Coal, coal what? Coal mines. Bring coal seam artifacts? The, inside of coal seam, they'll find tools. They'll, they'll find work – well – no, who knows? <laughs> I mean, so you have things. Uh, there are other examples of out of anachronistic, out of place artifacts, like the Baghdad battery, for example, uh, which is about a thirty-five hundred-year-old battery. It's basically a Leiden jar, 
from uh, oh I've heard of this yeah yeah from from essentially biblical era Baghdad uh, there are examples over and over again of these out of context devices animals this includes cryptozoology you know sea monsters uh, the coelacanth when it was first brought up and identified but had been thought to have been extinct for six or for sixty million years right. Fort was very interested in things like that which today is sort of the world of UFO sightings and ghost hunting and this kind of thing Fort was the first guy to catalog and collect that information and he wrote a series of books that I think there were four of them, right? Yeah. Book of the Damned, then Low, then Wild Talents, and I'm blanking on the last one, but... There, there is an English magazine called the Fortean Times that anyone who wants to work in the speculative fiction field should read because... Subscribe it, to. It is like the, it's like the weekly world news with citations. So they bring you all this weird stuff with sources and credibility, and they talk, they talk about all the weird things that go on in the world. It's a fantastic source book for SpecFic. Yeah. All right, we'll put that, we'll That's put really that cool. on, on our Even website. if you don't believe this stuff, what, what's interesting is that people report it and talk about it. Yeah. And that's what fascinates me is the idea that people see the world in this way, whether it is that way or not. Our author is Jay Lake. His books that we've been talking about mostly, Mainspring and Escapement, his book Green is about to be out, right? Uh, it'll be actually it's turned in it'll be out next June okay so a year from now okay yes. and <laughs> the publishing does not move quickly no 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 <laughs> and we want to get a, a list of your book recommendations to add to if you, uh, if you our site so I, I would be happy to email it to us we'll put it on, on, on the website so you can learn more about information about uh, Jay's work and stuff up at geekspeak.org including his, his favorites and Rick Kleffel of course is available linking to his blog which is wonderful um, from geekspeak.org Geekspeak is registered service mark of online tonight with David Lawrence and is used by permission Geekspeak is supported by a grant from Santa Cruz Electronics offering extensive selection of computer and electronic parts as well as support services Santa Cruz Electronics is open daily at 2808 SoCal Avenue and online at Santa Cruz Electronics Com. The geeks this morning were Miles Elam, Ryder Brook, Sean Cleveland, Rick F uh, Kleffel is our, I guess you do talk of the bay for, for, K for KOSP Weekly. Yes. And NPR um, uh, interviewer. And our author guest was Jay Lake. Jay, thank you. And all the geeks, thank you very much for being here. Thank you a lot. Really appreciate it. And answering the phones, Rick Philman. Stay tuned. We're going to be doing Castle Cottage just a little bit. You're listening to Geek Speak. Thank you for calling in with questions and comments. And, of course, you can ask us more things all week long at geekspeak.org. We have forums for that. Broadcasting HD Radio on 88.9 FM. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KOSP Santa Cruz, KBDH San Ardo, on the web at KOSP.org. Coming up next is Castle Cottage with Susan Freeman. But first, we're going to have the Slow County Report. For KOSP and Geekspeak, I'm Lyle Troxel. See you next week. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.